Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. When buying existing properties becomes too cost prohibitive, you may need to pivot to new development. Whereas cap rates on existing properties in desirable markets may have plummeted to as low as sub 4%, cap rates on ground up development can be as high as 10%. Even in growing markets, today's guest, David Kislin, owner at JEL Development, is doing small infill residential ground-up projects in South Florida and is generating great returns. So today we have with us a fascinating individual who we've been uh, chatting before I just hit this record button. And uh, that's on a, on a personal uh, note, but professionally, another superstar uh, real estate gentleman. He is the owner at JEL Development in Boca Raton. I never know if it's Boca Raton or Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, this is David Kislin. And David, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you very much, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for the invitation to come online. It's always uh, nice to share uh, stories about real estate, my passion and my love besides my family and uh, speak to like-minded individuals and uh, hopefully get a positive experience for everybody involved. I guarantee this will be a positive experience. So we were chatting and then I said, hey, let's just take it online here. It's so interesting. You were born in Odessa, which I understand is a beautiful town. I think I forget it is on the Baltic, but maybe you can give me the the background and how long your family had been there. I just love that. I love history. So that's why I ask these questions. Sure. And uh, I'm I'm somewhat of a history buff. I try to make an attempt to read uh, history books you know, on a regular basis. Let me interrupt rudely and save myself some embarrassment. It's not sure. on the Baltic. What an idiot I am. Correct me right out of the gate on that one. Well, <laughs> it's on the Black Sea. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, my family dates it uh, historically back to Odessa, probably uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Prior to that, my family, we were uh, Jewish. We have been Jewish and uh, Jews were primarily designated to live in special zones in the Ukraine, which were administered by Cossack uh, governors and such. But by the early 1900s, late 1800s, things somewhat liberalized and uh, many Jewish people moved to Odessa. And the population uh, swelled pretty dramatically, where at one point Odessa was, I would say, 40-50% of Jewish heritage. Odessa is an interesting city in the sense that because it's on the Black Sea and its um, waterway connections to many other regions, Turkey, you know, which opens up into Europe, and then the Persian Gulf and Iran and everything uh, towards the east, made Odessa very much a cosmopolitan and metropolitan, a more, much more cosmopolitan city than many cities in the Ukraine, much more so than Kiev, and in many regards, even Moscow. In the early 70s, my family chose to take the opportunity to leave uh, Russia. There was a program where uh, Jewish people were allowed to leave because of persecution. If you know communist history, you were it was illegal to practice religion, whether you were Catholic, Muslim, or Jew, you would be, in effect, arrested if you were uh, seen going to a temple, a religious institution, or if you had uh, in any way uh, provided, you know, people with an opportunity to learn, learn religion. So we uh, left that 
uh, communist, socialist, you know, more totalitarian society, moved to Boston in the 70s, uh, you know, with basically my father was a self-made man. He came here with nothing, even though he was quite successful there and uh, slowly grew, you know, his businesses. At one time he was in electronics. At another time he was doing commodity trading. And I came here at a very young age and grew up primarily in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I think that's originally where my love of real estate came through because if you grow up in Brooklyn or you grow up in Manhattan, you are exposed at a very early age to very beautiful buildings, Chrysler Building, Empire State Building, you know, even the Statue of Liberty per se. And even coming from Brooklyn as a young child, when you're much poorer, you're on the subway and you're coming from a, you know, I grew up, you know, relatively poor. And you're coming across the bend on that subway and you look out the window and you see the New York skyline. It's, it's pretty dramatic. It, it can create a dramatic effect on the person. And, uh, from that pretty much early age, I felt that I was kind of interested in what I would call building something and building something that, you know, hopefully in some cases would last the test of time. Uh, but really uh, using, seeing that whole process, taking a piece of land. And kind of seeing how it grows or even how a community grows around it and the importance and the importance of real estate in the fabric of society. So I'm going to go all the way back. Where was your family prior to Odessa? Oh, uh, my family prior to Odessa was uh, in a small shtet. It basically was uh, a shtetl. The shtetl doesn't exist anymore. I have to look at my research to see what even the name of the shtetl was. And it was about, I would say, 80 kilometers outside of Odessa. In the late 1800s, between 1860 and 1890, there were a number of very vicious pogroms and um, and famines uh, due to you know all sorts of so- social changes uh, with the czarist regimes at that time. And a pogrom basically would be is a Cossacks. Uh, and again, at that time, Jews were not allowed to really own horses. They weren't allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to uh, own guns. Cossacks were, so they would. Uh, come into these Jewish villages and basically, you know, pillage and, and kind of, uh, you know, minimize the populations there for whatever their, you know, slights they felt had occurred. And that's why many, many Jews eventually left those shtetls for the safety of, uh, of a more metropolitan urban area. Yeah, they, they'd, uh, the Cossacks would get uh, totally drunk on Easter and come massacre yours and my ancestors, basically. Exactly, exactly. So that's in my in my point of view. You mentioned the importance of history and that process therein, and I think it is very important that we all educate ourselves a little bit in history because it provides you know real insight on how we all got here, and uh, perhaps you know it will enlighten us on uh, uh, you know the the road ahead. Yep, you got it, man. Uh, I agree with you a million percent. Uh, it's interesting. It's also, I think, important to know where you came from and so you have, have a broader context. Well, that's the uh, that's the cool stuff, man. So, uh, you know, there you were, your kid didn't have a lot of money in Brooklyn, taking the subway in, probably a screw around in Manhattan with some friends. Maybe you see the New York City skyline and all its glory and you're like, oh my God, it's unbelievable. And I can relate. I've, I have been enamored with Manhattan from the first time I went there and it's never abated to this day. I'm long overdue a trip, but COVID's delayed all that. So how then did you ultimately uh, wend your way into the world of real estate? I graduated uh, Dwight High School in Manhattan in 1990, and I went to um, Babson College in uh, 1990 to do a four, you know, four-year undergrad. And my primary focuses at that time, 
maybe it's changed now. There wasn't anything per se specific to real estate. It was, you know, you take finance, you take international business studies, um, you know, you took, you took accounting, you took a variety of classes. So my focus was basically finance and international business studies. Um, upon uh, during my time in Babson, uh, again, I was very much influenced by my surroundings. Uh, Babson College had a unique kind of profile in the sense that it was a very attractive school for international students, but international students whose parents had existing businesses overseas. So for instance, the Perrier family would send their kids there, many, uh, many families from, uh, from Asia or from the Arabian countries. So that way their children at the age of 18 would go to America study and bring back that business knowledge to their country. You know, how are things done in America? So I was exposed at, a very, uh, at that age to a lot of international students, Italian, French, uh, kids from London, Slovakia, Russia. So I real so at that point I knew when I wanted to when I was going to graduate I was absolutely going to do something overseas. And in 1993-94 it was a very exciting time in Russia. Uh this is just 8 years after what uh you know we referred to as perestroika or glasnost uh which was the initial opening of Russia uh with Gorbachev and Reagan and the talks therein and I immediately in 1992, as soon as I graduated Babson, I packed my bags and I flew to Moscow and I got myself a job at uh, one of the local trading houses. And the tra uh, trading house, which is not as, they're not as uh, big now as they used to be, but it was basically, I was a commodities trader. I would buy physical commodities from a less developed country. Russia, Ukraine. Yeah, I would do do a lot of business. China, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and with the goal of sending those quote unquote semi finished products from those areas to Western Europe, America. So a typical example would be is I would buy hot rolled coils or cold rolled coils. Uh, I would ship them to Michigan. I would buy them from some factory in Siberia. I would handle all of the shipping, logistics, letters of credits. I would have a support staff and I would typically work through an office in Switzerland. At that time, it was a group called Mark Rich. He was quite an infamous trader and was, uh, and, uh, had gotten into a lot of trouble with the U.S. authorities. Uh, so he was a very interesting character to work with. I think he was, I think he was friends with Bill Clinton. Uh, he was friends with Bill Clinton and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was an expert in getting around international, you know, affairs, trading, you know, embargoes, et cetera. Uh, so it was a very interesting and dynamic time to work. And as a young person, it gave me a lot of opportunities to make a, a pretty good, create myself a pretty good nest egg or uh, an investment, uh, let's call it a portfolio, because there was, I guess, it was a Wild West market at that time. You could call it that. In some cases, we were making 100% returns in, in some events until the markets kind of figured things out and things became more standardized or, or, or accesses to markets became more readily available. So we would buy product in Siberia at domestic prices, you know, which in that case might be, I don't know, for a ton of steel at that time was maybe $350, $400 we would handle everything. We would sell it to a Michigan supplier, a Michigan, some somebody like Bing, Bing Enterprises, which does brake pads for Ford. 
And uh, we would literally triple our money on a gross basis. There would be costs involved, you know, LCs, all sorts of other costs, you know, transportation, and of course, personnel costs. But it was an extremely profitable business for a good number of years until like any good capitalism or any good market forces, uh, people started realizing how much money there was and the market became very saturated. On a scale of one to 10, how, how good looking were the women in, in Moscow? Uh, I give it about a 10 and a half. Uh, <laughs> so, um, it, it, it's, uh, it can be told that at that time I was a single man and I was committed to not getting married until, you know, the late nineties or two thousands when I finally met my wife. Uh, but yes, it, it was a very, uh, uh, <laughs> it was a very dynamic environment, both for making money and for, and for meeting beautiful women. So yes, that it, it, it had both of those going for it. Okay. So what, what did you do next? Towards the late nineties, it, it was becoming very, um, very intense as far as it was meaning it was becoming self-evident that I needed to make a choice. I either needed to be live in Moscow and, and, or live in Switzerland or live in America. It wasn't becoming realistic. You know, Russian people, you know, especially at that time, this is pre-internet, pre-communications. A fax machine was the best we had, you know. Uh, you know, I was one of the first people to buy one of those banana Nokia flip phones. People were looking at me like I was an alien. So these were very different times. And if you weren't at a meeting or you did not make your presence felt and you did not ensure that people followed through on your commands to the, to the T, you would lose your reputation in Russia within days. And then people would start, you know, stealing from you, not showing up to work, not executing. And it became basically uh, very, very self-evident that either I needed to live there or I needed to team up with a much larger organization, which I was not willing to do at that time, or I needed to make basically a decision to really make my bones in America and work in America. So it was uh, in the late 99, 2000, I basically slowly transitioned out of commodities. It wasn't kind of, it wasn't like, hey, one day I turned off the switch. It was 18 months, 24 months of legacy liquidations, you know, uh, closing offices. At one time I had six offices. I had an office in Zurich. I had an office in Kiev. I had an office in Moscow. We had an office in Shanghai. Uh, we had an office in New York, obviously. And we had a satellite office uh, right outside of Amsterdam. So it, it was becoming very, very difficult to maintain that level of activity with any quality of life. I was gone three weeks out of the month. The one week that I was home in New York was basically I was sleeping 16 hours a day at times, you know, just to catch up. <laughs> so um, I spent about two years of doing that. And then I started uh, acquiring very selective real estate uh, that I felt comfortable with. And that was my first transaction was in um, Tarrytown in uh, 2001. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of where my real estate career started then, which is, you know, going on 20 plus years. And what was that property? It was an interesting transaction. It was a, a colleague of mine came to me. I had been looking to, I had been looking to do multifamily primarily on the Lower East Side. I felt that was a good place for me. So there was an insurance claim. Um, and a colleague of mine and his partner, uh, we weren't doing business, but you know, we had known each other through other channels. Um, he owned 
something like 38, it was 38 individual condo units in a building that had some, had approximately 70, 75 units. So he was almost 50% of the total sponsorship. There was a major fire in the building and almost all of his units and the number of other units needed to be fixed. The insurance company had paid him a, a considerable sum and he had not gotten around to fixing anything and had gotten into litigation with the tenants and with the city. So he came to me and he said, David, are you willing to basically, I'll sell you the whole, you know, all of the units and, but you have to take responsibility and basically, you know, finish the renovation, clean them up, blah, blah, blah. I bought the units at a very attractive price per key. This is 2001. I think we purchased on average was about 41, 42 a key. We put in approximately 20, 25 a key into it for each unit. And we started retailing them at, you know, the 100 to 120K range. And we did, you know, pretty damn well. And who was the we? I had uh, one other business partner at the time who was also a, a colleague of mine from the commodities days which we he we shared the responsibility of basically executing the work. So uh he and he was also a portion of the equity. I found myself that in most of my projects I'm typically fifty percent or more of all the equity. I see. And so that obviously went well as planned. Hey Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the PL. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. And then what did you do next? You said you were interested in multifamily. Is that primarily where you stuck? So, yeah. So I was a city resident. I lived on the Upper West Side. I really wanted, you know, and as I said early on, for me, it was really important from an ego basis to really invest in Manhattan and be like a Manhattan developer, you know, because in my mind, that was the cream of the crop, the top of the top. Like if, if you could be a developer in Manhattan, that you could be, you know, you could do it anywhere and you're at the top of the game. So I, my goal was to really focus on the island Manhattan. I wasn't ready to do ground up development. I wasn't ready to do anything really dramatic. So we started looking at very selective properties in areas that we, you know, we had a lot of confidence in. So we looked in Soho primarily, and we very quickly realized that if we buy multiple properties in the same area, what we can do is we can purchase properties that have a higher ratio of rent stabilized and rent controlled tenants and properties with a lower ratio of rent stabilized rent controlled tenants. So one example is we bought on uh, there's a property on 6th Avenue in Soho, 6th Avenue on King Street, uh 135 King Street and there was a pro there was at the 14 units in the bill in three separate buildings. So it was basically four uh it was four units per building. 
And each unit, each building had a number of rent stabilized slash rent controlled tenants. We took a very, and it's not a unique strategy. Uh, this is a strategy that's been done by real estate developers in this field in New York for many years. It's just a very narrow field. So we would purchase the properties. We obviously would buy them at the current cash flow, the current rent rolls. So you're buying things very cheaply on a per pound basis, but you're taking the liability of having a rent controlled or a rent stabilized tenant there for, I don't know, God, un- until basically they die for the most part. And if your listeners aren't aware of what a rent stabilized or rent controlled tenant is, I'll try to briefly explain it. In the late 40s, early 50s, and going through right until recent times, New York City has a law that states that if a tenant had moved into a certain apartment, then their rent can't increase beyond the prescribed rate that the city has stated, which in many cases is zero or one percent. So in an apartment that would be receiving, I don't know, let's call it three, four thousand dollars a month in rent in market rate income, a rent stabilized tenant would be paying three or four hundred dollars a month. Well, and, and now I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but a couple of years ago, Cuomo, you know, made it even more onerous where, the, where you couldn't even raise it when the property was vacant and there was some like Byzantine formula about, and I think it's chased a lot of people out of uh, New York, uh, the boroughs, um, because it just got to the point where you just, I mean, when somebody's paying 300 and they finally die, you know, 500 years later, and then you can't even raise the rent then, it's like, at that point, you might as well just leave the business. But anyway, so what did you do? Buy the tenants out or what did you, what did you do? No, we realized that, and everybody had told us is buying these tenants out is foolhardy. You can, in some cases, no matter how much you offer them, it wouldn't make economic sense. But what you could do is offer them a newer apartment right next door that they would stay in at the same exact terms and conditions they're staying in now. So what we did is, is we took basically three buildings, turned one building exclusively into a rent-stabilized, rent-controlled property, and the other property is vacant. So now what happens is, is that we sell the rent-stabilized, rent-controlled property as a cash flow property at a cheap price per pound to, you know, a, an investor who's willing to hold on to this for a generation. And then the vacant property you sell at a crazy number because there's almost no vacant properties in Soho. And we did pretty well on two or three of those properties. But the time frame that it took us to execute was so long that I realized that I would never be able to grow investors. I would never be able to really expand the business in any substantial way. There was no ability to forecast this because you could basically hit a home run and convince three or four tenants right away, or you could spend two years you know, bringing them donuts until they finally said, fine, we'll do it. Yeah, brain damage. Right. So that was, that was one of my earlier deals. We also did some speculative deals that worked out well for us. We bought some condos out of foreclosures, renovated them, flipped them, sold them along those lines. But in 2004, 2005, I developed enough, I feel, confidence. And there's an area in New York called the High Line. Now it's very famous. There's called the High Line Park. At that time, it was still very much seedy. Uh, there was a lot of prostitution, drug dealing, very dirty because it was underneath you know, uh, the old uh, railroad. And we bought a property, 519 West 23rd Street. 
and we chose to develop our first brand new ground up condo. And I was super excited about that project. And the project worked out for the most part very well on an execution basis. We started in 2004. We started pre-sales in 2005, construction in 2005 as well. Took us about two and a half years to construct almost three. And during that time, we had sold those. We had done so well on those pre-sales. I simultaneously bought a much larger landlot in Tribeca as well. Just uh, basically Franklin Street. It's in the heart of Tribeca, heart of old Tribeca, where all the old cast iron buildings are. And I think that was one of my biggest mistakes because I attempted to do a quantum leap forward, meaning that the Highline 519 was a very successful project. The total project cost was approximately $7 million to $8 million, and the total sellout of 12 to $14 million. The next project I took on was a total build-out of 70 to $80 million. <laughs> with a, a, a sellout of 120 to 140. And we were on track. We were doing very well. We had a number of pre-sales, but then 2009 kicked in right in the middle of our construction of our Tribeca project. And uh, that was basically uh, what I would call my most formative real estate years. Um, you know, I always tell people, if you want to be truly successful, you should, you know, you should make money, lose money, and then make money again, because that's the only way you can appreciate it. So uh, that time from 2009 till 2011 was extremely formative for me and really taught me a lot about the business, how it's changed from being a lot more small operators to being much more corporate. And in my personal experience, the rule that I've set since then is uh, don't do projects too large unless you are personally in a position to finish. And what happened in 2009, 2010, 2011 was the whole entire, in effect, ecosystem, the real estate ecosystem fell apart. Uh, the lender who had provided me with a construction loan, which was Chorus Bank at the time, actually declared bankruptcy. So... Imagine a scenario where you have a project where your holding costs are, well, my holding costs on per month were somewhere in the four to $500,000 a month range, real estate taxes, insurance, personnel, uh, you know, site maintenance, et cetera, uh, finance costs. And now you have your lender who's declared bankruptcy, your other two partners who are unwilling or unable to provide the funding to continue the project. Me, I'm sitting there truly believing in the project, understanding that, you know, you have to withstand this three or four or five year time period to really win out at the back end. But it became very apparent that that would not be possible. So in 2011, uh, we made an active decision to liquidate the property to a much larger fund. We got out of it, you know, I would say by the skin of our teeth. And from that point forward, since 2011, 2012, I moved my family down to Florida, primarily as a personal reason, but also kind of to take a sabbatical from real estate for a year. Uh, my daughter was a very accomplished tennis player. And at that time, she was looking to basically take it to the next level. So we felt the, the move down here was very apropos. And since then, I've really focused on smaller infill projects, uh, developments in areas in South Florida 
that I don't have to compete with much larger developers where I'm looking at uh, specific locations that have some walkable factor that are near the ocean that are highly desirable to live in, but that don't have a million new units going up every month like they have in, let's say, Brickell or they have in Fort Lauderdale. So hence why I've really focused on areas like North Broward, West Palm Beach, um, and really looking at doing quality renovations or quality ground up construction. And by doing that and by focusing in areas uh, like that, I'm able to achieve a much, I would say, a, a much better rate of return on my rentals than my competition because I've invested a little bit more in those properties, washer, dryers, newer kitchens, etc. And that's proven to be a pretty positive formula for me. And despite the fact that I'm not doing very large projects, by only working with very selective investors or just my own capital, I'm able to make the decisions that are best suited for the project are not best suited for short-term gains. So if I need to wait another six months to sell a property, or if I, uh, I can do that, or if I choose to invest a few more dollars in the property, I can do that without repercussions. And the other thing I've really changed my focus on is how I view financing. In the past, I would always look at financing as a way to lever up my transactions, You know, use mezzanine lenders, use bridge loans, use this, use that, use this. I've gotten away from that, and I really believe that as a local real estate developer, I've developed my local business contacts with local banks who may charge me a little bit more per basis, like maybe another 50 basis points or even 75 basis points, but they're local banks. They understand what they're dealing with. They understand their markets. They're not giving me a highly leveraged loan, but they understand what I'm doing, and I can pick up the phone and I can talk to them. This, in my mind, has been a very important factor in the growth of my real estate business, particularly recently, because I can effectively call one of five or six bankers right now, verbally explain to them the deal or send them a short spreadsheet. And they will tell me verbally within a day or two, David, I'll give you a million dollars at these terms, or I'll give you two million at these terms or half a million, and then follow that up with a term sheet within a few days. I found that to be extremely an invaluable experience in that regard. And I think that's something that some real estate developers say, I'm going to go and I'm going to call up every lender out there and try to get the best possible deal. The best possible deal in real estate is the person who's not charging you the least, but is doing the most for you as far as servicing you. Wow. That sounds like a lesson learned. Are you changing the uh, the kind of financing products as well or just dealing with local banks versus, you know, enormous faceless institutions? So are you no longer doing bridge debt or mezzanine debt or? Yeah, I'll basically say, I'll, like, for instance, a colleague of mine came to me and said, David, let's do this deal. And the lender was like, David, I'm not going to give you money for the land. I will give you the construction loan. I felt it was too much money to invest based upon those conditions. So I stayed away from that. Going to a large group of lenders and m- most lenders, you have to understand, unless, and, and this is where I say the business has changed. I'm doing deals, Roger, that are very small in size. And what I mean small in size is I'm never asking more than $5 million for a loan. You know, my 
my sweet spot is between one and three for loans. So that means that whoever I go to, if I go to one of these investment bankers or one of these like larger institutions, they're going to look at me and they're going to say, how am I going to get fees out of this guy? And they're not. They're not going to get all those big fat fees. I got guys calling me all day long, David, let's do a big deal. Let's do a big deal. But it's got to be 20 million equity minimum. It's got to be a hundred million dollar loan because everybody's interested in just pushing these fees. When dealing with local lenders, they have an obligation to the community. They have to fill their loan capacity. If you're a Palm Beach County bank, you have to give X amount of money to Palm Beach County by law. They want to give that money to people who are who are investing and developing in their local communities who they can go and visit and follow through. And I feel that I would rather say no to a deal if my local bank is saying no, than say yes to a deal just because some guy in San Francisco says, David, I could get you an extra 20% leverage on it. Very interesting. So if you're doing one to $3 million, is it typically the amount you know that you're borrowing? What's the scope and in, in nature of what you're doing mostly you know, over the last, I don't know, year, two years? Is it mostly ground up? Is it mostly you know, repositioning of existing assets? And how many, how many units typically? So right up until COVID, this is interesting, and um, is that right up until COVID, repositioning existing assets, buying existing multifamilies, uh, you know, anywhere from four to 20 units was par for the course. I could find attractive properties, buy something that, you know, an amateur investor or some family owned for 30, 40 years, go in there and do my thing, you know, new kitchen, new bath, washer, dryers, you know, blah, blah. One of my things was, is that I would always look to see if there's on-site parking for some, you know, a lot of real estate uh, guys in Florida don't seem to look at on-site parking that important. I always do. I find that it rents the units quickly. And you know what, Roger, it was working out great. Uh, the numbers were there. I knew what my renovation costs. As soon as COVID kicked in and you saw an influx of investors come into South Florida, and in the same capacity that you're saying people got upset with New York's draconian rules, so many California investors started coming down here and just buying any multifamily they could get their hands on. And I started competing with those people and realizing this is a fool's game. You know, there's no, uh, you know, if I was just a year or two years ago, if I was right before COVID, if I was buying something for 80 to 90 a key and I would invest 30 or 40 a key, that was a good investment. Now suddenly, it's 120, 125 a key overnight. And I still have, to, and now I have to invest even more because of inflation and because of all this stuff. It stopped making sense. And what I did was, is I said, look, uh, I have my own general contracting company. I'm, I know what I'm doing with entitlements. I know how to get around zoning. I know how to build ground up. I sold off most of my multifamily portfolio at a very attractive numbers. And the last uh, year, year and a half, I've really been just focusing on ground up construction for smaller infill projects. And by the end of this year, I'll have finished my first out of out of three that I have in the pipeline. And based upon my matrices and my numbers and where my performers at today, I'll be able to finish a project and and basically be at a 10 cap, you know, for myself um on a brand new project and i think that's where that's really where i need to be at i think there's a real dearth of small infill developments in south florida probably los angeles etc 
there's a lot you hear about lots of developers who buy, you know, three, four acre parcels and put up 150 units, you know, God willing, I'm all for that. But that not that's not for every neighborhood. You know, I work in Lake Worth Beach. I work in Deerfield Beach. I work in Boca. Some of these lots are, you know, quarter acre lots, you know, 7,000 square foot lots. You know, it would take a generation to, to you know, put together an acre, acre there. So my goal is to just focus on quality ground up infill construction at this point. So you've got three in process now. How many units are they typically? Four units. All got of them it. are going to be four units per, per project. I see. And then are you going to sell them to, you know, Californians and New Yorkers or who knows? It's um, it's my projections and my performers show that we will sell them. But what we typically do is uh, we like to season the product for at least a year uh, and then bring it to market. But I'm not sure. I may very well sell these while they're empty because what i because what i found is when selling my existing multifamily portfolio is is that when you show an apartment that's empty and people know what the rent roll is or you could prove the rent roll they want to see an empty apartment they don't want to see an apartment with a lot of clutter and a lot of nonsense and everything else so if the numbers justify a sale even before the seasoning period then i would i would most certainly do that and that would be classified more as a merchant build. Yes, I see. And how how uh, is the uh, price of all the land going way up to like everything else? Well, that that's really the, the biggest issue is by is the price per pound, and that's why uh, uh, when you look at zoning and when you look at entitlements and when you look at what's allowed and what's not allowed, it's it's critical that that you look at all those factors. I'm looking at a product in in Deerfield Beach. It's an RM25 zoning, which, you know, for, for the average listener, they might know that, but it, that RM25 means that for every acre, you're allowed to do 25 units and you have to obviously satisfy certain setbacks, et cetera. This particular lot would be due to the era RM25 only allows for 3.75 units, but obviously I want to do four. <laughs> so, you know, if I could get that fourth unit, uh, then it makes sense on 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 the per per bound price. If I don't get that extra unit, then it's not going to make sense. It, it it messes up the numbers too much. So the way I do it is is that it to be honest, if there's a very attractive property that comes up, it's going to trade super quick. When I look at some land, I look at kind of that weirder site or that off that that site that's a little small, so that way it's not attractive to the big guys but it's too big for the small guys. And that's been kind of my sweet spot, I would say. But let's see if that continues or not. I'm pretty lean and mean. I only have one full-time employee and one part-time employee. So that justifies my ability to do that. But if you're an organization with three or four or five mouths to feed every, every week, that might not be an option. And so these four units that you have under construction, I guess, all in, what will your cost, your development cost be, and what will you be able to sell them for? So we're performing this. Uh, we're looking at about an all-in cost of a million two fifty to a million three with financing, etc. And we will achieve a gross rent roll on that of about one hundred twenty-five, hundred thirty once we rent them all. If I could sell it for a minimum of one six, I would do it. 
if I'm not going to get my minimum number, then I'll be in more than a better position to refi the project. And I would say get, if not a hundred percent of my equity out, but you know, close to 90% between 80, 80 and a hundred percent of my equity out, which would in effect make my, you know, return on equity look crazy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Very, very interesting. Well, you know what? You're a guy that knows how to adapt and be nimble and flexible and kind of be realistic about the opportunity. And that's, um, you know, that's pretty impressive. You know, I would ask you, you know, your lessons, but you've already you've already said what they were. And I and um, I heard recently and I don't remember who it was attributed to, and it doesn't really matter, but when you're talking about what you went through in you know, 2009-ish, success is a terrible teacher. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Especially the longer, the longer you are successful, mm-hmm. and because you're, always, you're only as good as your last project. It's, it's like anything, whether you're an actor, whether you're, whether you're a, a professional football player, you know, it's, it's like Tom Brady, he could win a million times. But if he doesn't win this year's Super Bowl, he's going to get criticized, right? You're only as good as your last deal. And in real estate, you know, you're, ju- you're very much judged on that in the, in the same capacity. And in my lesson is, is that you can't hit a home run every time, but you should at least get on base every time. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to strike out. Do you miss New York? You know, Roger, I'm going to be 50 years old soon. If I was a young man, I would miss New York very much. But I enjoy my lifestyle down here. I, I play tennis. I'm not much of a golfer. Uh, I play tennis. I run. I enjoy, you know, outdoor activities and and enjoy the lifestyle that Florida grants me, especially the the quietness of it all. But as a young person, COVID or no COVID, Zoom or no Zoom, whatever it is, New York has a dynamic energy that only a few cities on this planet truly have. It, New York, London, Paris. You know, these are these are centers of culture. Uh, these are places where, as young people, especially, or as people who are in the top of their field, you have an opportunity to interact on a physical and personal basis, and that can produce, you know, tremendous, tremendous positive results. So, you know, it's like my daughter who's going to be graduating Emory next year, and her boyfriend who's graduating University of Chicago. Uh, I tell him, yeah, you guys should go and live in New York. <laughs> You know, because as young people, I think uh, it provides one a canvas to really expand your your consciousness in that regard. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. What's J.E.L., by the way? Oh, um, I'm a little bit superstitious. So J.E.L. is uh, J is for Juliana. That's my uh, oldest daughter. E is for Esther. That's my youngest daughter. And L is for Lana. And that's my wife. So um, that's how the acronym came about. It's just a matter of, you know, I find that if I name my company or an acronym after something I love, that will, uh, you know, transfer into the business somehow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, hey, you know, I know you're not like a super aggressive fundraiser here. You're like you said, it's very select investors and your own personal capital. But, it, you know, if someone were to want to, uh, you know, uh, learn a little bit more about what you're doing, uh, how would they do that? You know, they can email me at uh, Kislin, K-I-S-L-I-N at gel development, J-E-L development.com. I also have a website, geldevelopment.com. And there is a contact page there as well. 
Um, there's a, there's a number that, you know, you can call and leave a message for. You can also reach out with me, reach out to me via LinkedIn, uh, which seems to be a very popular way, you know, and a lot of people do reach out to me that way as well. I'm not much of an Instagram, Twitter, or TikToker. So those are the ways primarily after that, after we do establish, you know, some rapport, I'll get you my cell phone. I'm not a, I'm not proud of that either. <laughs> Smart man. But David, this has been absolutely fantastic. And um, look, man, you're sticking to your knitting. Uh, you know your craft, and I'm sure you're just going to keep uh, being incredibly successful. I, I very much appreciate the time. All right, Roger. Listen, I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's been a real treat. And if you're ever down here in South Florida in the Boca Raton area, I let, you know, reach out. We'll have a cup of coffee or a martini or something. All right. You got it. All right. All right. David, thank talk you. To you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.